Well, we come for our reading this morning, first of all, to 2 Kings chapter 16, which is a change to the bulletin, then turning over to Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. Before coming to the reading of the word, I would like to speak to the children for a moment, and I'm sure that uh, some of you are wondering, in following Pastor Bob's series on the M people of the Bible, why couldn't I have just picked somebody like Mark? Why pick a young boy called Maher Shalal Hashbaz? How many of the young people here like to hear about dad's younger days, mum's younger days? Any of the children like to hear what dad and mum were up to when they were young? No? Well, I did. And my parents used to speak about their younger days. And I remember on one occasion, my father told me about going to see, when he was a student, a godly elderly woman who had a cat called Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And you can imagine what I said to my dad, probably what you would say to your dad too or your mum. Maher what? He says, you've never heard of Maher Shalal Hashbaz? I said, no. He said, well, go away, laddie boy, and read Isaiah chapter 8. So I went away and read Isaiah chapter 8. And there is this little boy, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And the thought occurred to me, as occurs to young boys, well, I must learn more about this little boy. But here we are, 40 or so years later, and I'm finally getting round to it. So when Pastor Bob said, or Elder Hank said, will you preach this morning? Oh, it's the M people, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Well, we're going to study about him this morning in the larger context of the reign of King Ahaz, and we'll read this chapter and then turn over for some verses to Isaiah 7 and 8. Let us hear the word of the Lord. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Razin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Razin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king 
of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Razin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord. And he put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great altar burned the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw, it, throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Then if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 7, we read verses 1 to 2. This is to do with Isaiah prophesying to Ahaz. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And then... Moving down to verse 10, the Lord gives Ahaz the first sign by which he can trust the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you 
upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And then the Lord gives a second sign. We turn to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the Lord, before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So reads the word of God. Father, Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion, these portions of your word, and just pray that they may be made clear to us now through the preaching of the word. And we know that all of your word is inspired by you, and we long to see how this will be be taken care of into the preaching. And just bless uh, Dr. Trumper as he brings this to us, we pray. Ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the M people then, a boy named Mahershalal Hashbaz. We come then specifically this morning to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, but we'll have to see it in its whole context. And yet we want to note from the outset that uh, the reference twofold to Mahershalal Hashbaz in this passage is unique in Scripture. Frankly, I didn't know before coming to worship with you this morning that this is the longest name in the Bible, and for that piece of trivia, I'm very grateful to uh, Elder Ken. I'm glad I got it right, but it was purely a guess. The passage is very brief, but it's very instructive for us. But in order to understand it, we need to know what's happening in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC. And in doing so, we learn that this boy was a sign from God in times of trouble that we ought to place our trust in God, for he is utterly trustworthy. And so the theme of our sermon this morning is trusting God in times of trouble. We began our worship service this morning singing Thomas Chrisholm's hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, to look at God and to say, He is faithful. But really the challenge of the passage is whether we, in response to God in His faithfulness, are actually faithful ourselves. And so trouble has a divinely ordained role in uncovering the state of our hearts and in uncovering whether we are merely Christian in an external sense or whether in the day-to-day -day affairs of life we are trusting God, we are hanging upon God, we are dependent upon God, we are living in the life of that second hymn that we sung, I need thee every hour, O gracious Lord. And so we come this morning to four Ps. And the first is the prophet, as we seek to understand why this sign was given, the boy, Maha Shalal Hashbaz. The first P is the prophet. 
We know from the opening verse of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah was the son of Amos. And his name, as is so often typical in Hebrew culture, anticipates or represents a major theme of life, and in particular, a major theme of Isaiah's ministry. His name means the Lord is salvation. And so as we make our way through the book, we learn that he's the first major prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah, focusing upon Jerusalem. It's now nearly two centuries since the kingdom has divided, and Isaiah is prophesying to the lower kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And he does so under four reigns. We know that he is called in the last year of Uzziah, and we'll come to that. And then he prophesies through the reign of Jotham, and then through the reign of Ahaz, and finally through the reign of Hezekiah. But as we jump forward from the first verse of the book to chapter 6, we come across, first of all, his call in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. That marvelous vision which he had in the year that King Uzziah died. He saw the Lord in his temple high and lifted up. And he saw the seraphim worshiping and bowing, crying out antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah gets a glimpse of the power of God, God in his glory. And he gets a glimpse of the holiness of God, an uncreated holiness, which is so different to the created holiness of those unfallen angels. And it's in that context in which God begins to prepare Isaiah for the ministry he has. Because in seeing this powerful, all-powerful God in his utter holiness, his spotless holiness, that equips him with strength and with courage then to come to earthly kings, corrupt in their governments, and to speak forth the word of God. And it's a lesson for us today, isn't it? that we need to see God in his greatness and in his glory if we are going to live and if we are going to minister with courage in our day. Because it is only when we cry out as Moses did and the people of Israel did in previous centuries, show us your glory and your greatness. It is only in that context that we then have power and authority to speak to the earthly authorities of our day. But, of course, in order to do that, we need to be cleansed. And so a coal, a hot coal, is taken off the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah, a very sensitive part of the body. And Isaiah, no doubt, jumped back, and his sin is purged, and he is called to the ministry, and he is to speak holy things authoritatively. And so we need to pray then in our day. We need to pray that we would see God in his glory and in his greatness. Reminded of the uh, missionary C.T. Studd, he lived from 1860 to 1931, and he said this, I can't abide cowardice. I refuse to make God, my God and Savior, a non-entity. And that is what we are doing when we are lacking in courage as the people of God today. We are saying that our God is small. Our God is powerless. And so when we see God in his glory and his greatness, it is then that we have the courage to live as we ought to live as Christians in an age in which we are unpopular. 
And so there's the call of Isaiah, but then secondly, there's the charge of Isaiah, verses 9 through 13. The Lord doesn't press gang people into serving him. But what he does is to create a desire within the heart to do so. And so, having seen this awesome picture of God, God says, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And the plural pronoun there is the fourth time in the Old Testament that it's used, indicating that there is more to God than simply his oneness or his unity. And so Isaiah steps forth and he says, here I am, send me. Now, he doesn't know the mission to which he's called, but when we hear the mission, it's very daunting. It's not going to be popular. The people of God in Judah have been rejecting the word of the Lord and so rejecting the word of the Lord that the judgment of God is coming upon his people. And how is that judgment going to affect itself? Well, you see, they will understand the words that Isaiah says, but they won't perceive what he's saying. They will hear what he has to say, but they won't listen to it. They will see what he's trying to communicate, but they will be blind as to the intensity and the earnestness of the message that he has from God for them. And so we read in the final verses of Isaiah 6 just how daunting this call upon Isaiah's life is going to be. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Imagine that. Here he is. He steps forward. I will go. I will proclaim the word of the Lord. Well, here's the charge, Isaiah. You are going to so preach and to be so ignored that nine-tenths of the nation are going to be taken into exile. And those who remain in the land... They're going to be burned again. And this is going to be your consolation. That out of all the destruction of the people of God, there is going to be a holy seed, and that seed is going to be the Messiah. You won't see him in your own day, but to you will be given the privilege of prophesying that the Messiah is coming. And thus we know Isaiah today as the evangelical prophet. Now I want to say that this is very relevant today in our celebrity culture, where numbers are everything. Let me say this quite categorically, that if Isaiah lived today, he would be fired before he ever fulfilled his call. And so I want to speak to us as uh, those who may be contemplating a call to the ministry and ask you whether you would still put your hand up and say, here am I, send me. If you knew beforehand that God would send you to a congregation to empty the congregation rather than to fill it. To empty the congregation of those who weren't heeding the word of God, weren't obeying the word of God, weren't interested in the word of God. And your job is to whittle the congregation down to the remnant until only those who want to hear the word of God are left. Would you still step forward? And so let me say to you, if you are contemplating a call to the ministry and One of the things we ought to be praying for as a congregation, that there will be those emerging amongst us with that sense of calling who will say, come what may, whether I end up popular or not, I want to preach and to proclaim the word of God because I've seen something of God in his glory and his greatness. And this is how I want to spend my life, pointing people to the glory and the greatness of the Lord. 
But in our celebrity culture today, there's also the lesson for congregants. As we look out, as we go online, we are not to judge people's ministries by how many are following them. We are to judge their ministries as to whether they're faithful to the Word of God. Because Scripture has numerous examples from the front cover to the back cover of those who are authentically called of God, empowered by God to speak forth His Word, who are actually emptied places rather than filled them. You think of Noah, just eight people going into the ark. You think of Isaiah, nine-tenths of the people going into exile. You even think of the Lord Jesus followed by crowds, so much so that he started speaking in parables to sift the crowds so that he'd be followed by his disciples and the crowd would go away. So that by the end of his ministry, there are 120 following him in Jerusalem and 500 in Galilee, and that was it. No wonder the Beatles said that they were more popular than Jesus Christ. You see, we have to come back to the Word and we have to subject the celebrity culture to the expectations of the Word of God itself. And so we come across, first of all, the prophet. And then secondly, we come across the problem. The narrative skips over, when we enter chapter 7, the reign of Jotham and comes to the reign of Ahaz. He reigned between 735 and 715 BC. And there's a problem amongst the people of God. Not many have been walking with God. And they are being found out in a day of trouble. And it's a reminder to us too, isn't it? If we are walking far away from God, we may think that, oh, God doesn't really see. God doesn't really know. He doesn't really know my down-sitting. He doesn't really know my uprising. He doesn't really know my thoughts from afar because I'm walking far from Him and pretty comfortable. And then, as so often happens, trouble comes, and we are found out. Well, notice in the seventh chapter three things. First of all, the trouble, verses 1 and 2. Ahaz, king of the southern kingdom, is being beset by the king of Syria to the north, and the northern kingdom, which should have known better, the kingdom of Israel. And pressure is being brought to bear upon the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, we know why this is the case. Because around this time, Assyria was emerging as the first world power in the ancient Near East. And so Assyria is putting pressure upon Syria and Israel. And Syria and Israel, in turn, are putting pressure on Judah. And the reason they are putting pressure on Judah is because King Ahaz, for safety's sake, wants to get into a relationship with the king of Assyria. And he thinks that's the way he can preserve Judah. And so because Judah is not entering into an alliance with the king of Syria or the king of Israel to ward off Assyria, Syria and Israel are putting pressure upon Judah and coming to war against them. And so Ahaz is between a rock and a hard place. If he goes all in with Assyria, there's no guarantee that Assyria will accept Judah. And if he allies with Syria and Israel, 
Judah will be overrun by Assyria. So I want to say by way of application, and I think the same pressures are facing the Church of Jesus Christ today. Decades ago, Francis Schaeffer complained that we've been far too complacent in the Christian church in the Western world. And I think his words are coming home to roost. He said, we are looking out at what is happening in society and how society is beginning to set its ducks in a row to oppose the Christian church. But our problem is this. We are looking at one duck and we are going after one duck. But the world is putting all these ducks in a row to come with force against the Christian church, to destroy the Christian church, and we are asleep. And so what have we found? Well, we found that our prayer meetings have been empty or non-existent because we do not feel the urgency of the world coming against the church. And then what are we finding more recently? We are finding that aspects or sectors of the Christian church, instead of standing up against the world, namely Assyria, are entering into local alliances to hedge their bets. And so you find that on an array of issues, instead of standing four square upon the truth of the word, what are denominations and congregations doing? Well, we, we now accept that uh, the scriptures are wrong about homosexuality. And so we change our opinion. They're hedging their bets. And we now think that we don't have to be so strident about pro-life issues. There are instances in which you know, we'll just turn a blind eye and you can have your abortion on the side. 43% of people who have an abortion claim some connection to the Christian church. And so we are facing this pressure as those who believe in the Bible, those who are endeavoring to stand four square in the Bible, we are facing the pressure from the world, Assyria. But we are also facing pressure from those sectors of the church which have compromised with the world in order to ironically protect their churches and make sure their churches are on the supposedly the right side of history. You know, Brenda and I, and maybe you do too, we drive down into the city of Grand Rapids, and we see a very nice church. But what is hanging above the front door of the church? A rainbow flag. That is Israel in alliance with Syria to protect themselves. And the irony of that is going to be that the world, Assyria, is not impressed by churches hanging rainbow flags over their front doors. The world has a strange admiration for those churches who, as obscure as they look, stand with the Word of God and say, this is what the Bible teaches a Christian is. And so come, if I may put it this way, hell or high water. I'm going to stick with the Scriptures because that is what a Christian does. And they may hate us. They may dismiss us from our jobs. They may take away our freedom of speech to speak. But there is a sneaking admiration for the Christian truth. And so this is the trouble which has come to Judah. And Ahaz is realizing that it's not easy going for him. And so he's in terror, verses 3 through 9. 
The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands are the fierce anger of Raisin in Syria, the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, and so forth. As verses uh, 2, verse 2 shows, Ahaz is terrified. What's he going to do? He's between a rock and a hard place. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz saying, Damascus will not stand. And Ephraim, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, will go into exile. Why? Because they compromise self-protection over trust in the Lord. And Isaiah comes with this word. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. One of the things which may be bothering us in these days is this, that some of the mighty denominations are toppling. People are leaving them in their droves because they've compromised the word. And we fear that the world is mocking us when they see church after church closing, as is happening here and certainly has been happening in Europe. Where great edifices built centuries ago are now up for sale. And we might be worried about that. But God is not so worried. God is saying, if they are in league with the world then they are going to go into exile. Because unless the church of Jesus Christ does the will of God, then it has no right to be defined as the church, no right to remain in existence. And so we need to expect that in these days there is going to be a purging of the professing church where the remnant will be kept by the faithfulness of God. But those in league with the world will gradually disappear. But the question in chapter 7 is this, what is Ahaz going to do? He's ruling in a way which is not pleasing to God. But God comes to him and says, what are you going to do, Ahaz? Are you going to return to me? And are you going to trust in me? Or are you going to put your faith in Assyria? Or are you going to capitulate to Syria and to Israel? You have three options, and I'm giving you one that is the best for Judah. And so we find in verses 10 through 25 that the first sign is given. God graciously condescends to Ahaz and says, listen, I know I'm trustworthy, but to help you, I'm going to give you a sign. Well, what is the sign? Well, the wording is familiar to us in verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word for virgin there is highly disputed as to whether it means virgin and, or young woman. I think in the context, and bear with me, don't jump out of your skin. I think in the context, it means young woman. A young woman is going to give birth to a child. The child is going to be called Emmanuel. A lesson to Ahaz that he must trust in the Lord. And before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, Assyria would overrun Syria and Israel. And so verses 18 through 25 picture how that is going to happen. 
Judah, however, would be safe if God's people rest in him. And that's the question of the day. Will Judah and will King Ahaz trust in him? Now, applying it to today, I want to say how much less excuse have we for not trusting in God now that we have the sign's ultimate fulfillment. Because, of course, the inspired interpretation of the sign is given for us in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What is Matthew teaching us? That God has ultimately revealed himself in the true Emmanuel, God with us, who is present with his people. And so in him, in Jesus Christ, the remnant of God's professing people trust, his divineness saves us and his humanity atones for our sins. Well, thirdly then, we come on to the promise. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. You see, you cannot understand about Mahashalal Hashbaz, the second sign, unless you understand all that has gone on before to bring us to this point. The Lord works according to his own principle of establishing a matter in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Therefore, this second sign is given. Whereas the first comes directly from the Lord, the second comes from the Lord through Isaiah. Now note three features of the sign. First of all, verse 1, it is accessible. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahashalal Hashbaz. He must write, first of all, on a large tablet in common characters. In other words, characters that all can understand. In other words, everybody is to have access to what is written. The message is public and eye-catching, belonging to Maha Shalal Hashbaz. What does that mean? Well, it's a catchphrase. Speed, spoil, haste, booty. What is God saying through Isaiah? He is saying that speedily Assyria will gain the spoil of Syria and Israel or hastily the booty. The sign is therefore a call to Ahaz and Judah to return to God. We've seen from 2 Kings 16 what's been going on, that Ahaz even sacrificed his own son as an offering to God. He allows Uriah the priest to build a temple, uh, to build an altar. Things are not well in Judah. And I want to say then that if today we find ourselves playing fast and loose with God, the pressure facing God's people is God's call to us to return to him. Have you noticed when Pastor Bob preaches that there's a burden upon his heart? I've noticed it because I share the same burden and many of you do, I'm sure, as well. He is concerned that the people of God are slipping and sliding. He is concerned that although we have this religiosity, this external aspect of church life, he's concerned as a pastor that our hearts don't become far from God, even when we're in the midst of public worship. And so sometimes he's very outspoken. I can sympathize with him. 
and many of you too can. And the question of the word comes to us this morning. Are we allowing things to slip and to slide? Well, the sign comes to us to write on a large tablet in common letters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Speed, spoil, haste, booty. The things that we may be following, whether the appeal, the lure of the world, it's going to come to nothing. Or whether our man-made attempts to protect the church of Jesus Christ, as if Jesus Christ can't protect his own church, and so we go into alliance with the world, that's going to come to nothing. All this series of ideological fads into which the church is tempted today are going to come to nothing. God wants his people to know that, and so he gives this accessible sign. And then he gives a reliable sign. He says, go and get Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. Now, when you read 2 Kings 16, you find out that Uriah the priest wasn't a holy man. He seems to have been a yes man. And so King Ahaz says, build an altar like they have in Damascus. And so he builds the altar. And it's as if God is saying to Isaiah, go and get Uriah the priest, because if you tell him to be a, a reliable witness about what is written on this large tablet in common characters, he will do it. And so it's a reliable sign. The placard is written, Uriah the priest tells people it's been written, and having the support of the priest, everybody else gets to know this sign from the Lord. But we have a greater sign today. It's the word of God himself. We've sung, haven't we? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid up for you in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you who has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? What is the point then? The point is that we are wedded to this more sure word of prophecy. We stick to the scriptures. We have patience with Pastor Bob as he expounds it every week. And we thank God that we have a pastor and we have an eldership, we have a diaconate who are committed to the word of God. And why are we so committed to the word of God? Not only because the word of God itself, its intrinsic excellencies, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, but also because we have the internal witness of the Spirit. So if Assyria today tells us that the word of God is nuts, or if Syria in alliance with Israel tells us to cut the corners of the word of God so that we can live a peaceable life, we say, no, we're wedded to the word of God. This is our firm foundation. Besides which we have none other, and what is more, we have the internal witness of the Spirit that this is the Word of God. So thirdly then, verses 3 to 4, the sign is verifiable. Isaiah is not told who is Mahershalal Hashbaz, yet he and his wife conceive a child. His wife is called a prophetess, not because she holds an official office, but because she becomes the bearer of the promise of God. And only once the boy is born and the Lord's directive is given, does it become apparent that their son is the second sign. 
So there's a repetition of the refrain, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 16. Before the boy knows. And again, before the boy knows how to say, my father, my mother, in one or two years' time, what's going to happen? Damascus or Syria and Samaria or Israel will fall. And that is what happened. And so Mahashal al-Hashbaz then is God's twofold promise. It's a judgment upon those who reject the word of God. And it's salvation for those trusting in him. And so fourthly then and finally we come to the principles following on chapter 8 and verse 5. The sign is followed by the word of explanation in all the turmoil. God calls his people to do four things. First of all, to look up, verses 5 through 8. God knows what his people are up against. No matter the odds, he will always have a remnant faithful to him. As for Israel, the northern kingdom who despised the waters of Shiloh, a gentle flowing rivulet on the east side of Jerusalem, what's going to happen? The great river Euphrates is going to come. It's going to wash away the northern kingdom. And because in the actuality of the situation, Ahaz did not trust the word of the Lord. Judah did not trust the word of the Lord. Eventually, Judah will go out into exile as well. And so the application comes to us today in our current situation. As a remnant of the people of God, seeking to be faithful to the word of God in our day. Yes, we are thankful for political parties. Yes, we are thankful for certain lobby groups. Yes, we are thankful for the possibilities in the Supreme Court. But all those things, helpful as they are, all they can do is restrain sin. They cannot change the human heart. And so we look up. We look up to a God who alone can change the human heart, who alone can transform, as it were, the Assyrians into lovers of God and of his people. We look up, pressed as we are by certain sectors of the church who would call us to compromise the word of God, and we look to God and we say, we are bent on remaining faithful to your word. Grant us the grace to stand firm upon the word of God. And then we look within verses 9 and 10. We need to question why we doubt God to protect those who are truly his. And why it is we so often make fear a virtue. After all, God calls the nations to break. First half of verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. God has pronounced their defeat, the second half of verse 9, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. They have no protection of their own. God thwarts their counsel, verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Who is the us? It's the remnant remaining faithful to God. And so thirdly, look around. Verses 11 through 22, I won't get into detail there, but read it for yourselves. But notice how chapter 11 ends. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick 
darkness. Why? Because the Lord will come to the aid of his people. And what will he do? He will obstruct the Assyria of today. He will thwart the worldly alliance between Syria and Israel. And he will come through for his remnant. And so it is for us to look around, I trust, with pity in our hearts. To see men and women sitting in darkness. Thinking they've arrived. Thinking they understand things which the poor, obscure, marginalized Christians don't understand. And we look out, we look around, and we pray for those who are in the gloom of anguish. I heard a statistic the other day. You think that the world is working? You think that alliances are working? That suicides have increased by 30% in the last 10 years. How many counseling offices are full of people who really need to be told your hope lies in the gift of repentance and faith. But secularists won't tell them that. They will put band-aids on their problems when the call of the gospel is turn unto me and be saved. And then fourthly, we look forward the light is not found in the Bible as in a book, but it's found in the Bible as a revelation of the living word who's coming. And so Isaiah from the 8th century looks forward to the Christ who's going to come. And you can read the opening verses of chapter 9, but this is what we get to. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He says, this is your hope, Judah. The Messiah is coming with the only true government, the only wonderful name, and the only everlasting kingdom. And here we are today in 2018, knowing that Christ has come and his kingdom is spreading throughout the world, but he's coming again as light into the darkness of our world. And this is our proclamation. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so as we close this morning, let me speak to three sorts of people here this morning. First of all, to the remnant. Those for whom it is not said, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Those who are walking the talk, wondering what is going to happen to the Christian church as the world presses in upon the church, distressed by the fact that there are denominations and congregations in league with the world against the remnant. God's word comes to you and says, I will come through for you. Keep trusting me. Don't capitulate to the temptation to water down the word of God. 
Secondly, I want to speak to any here this morning who may have slid back from their first love for the Lord. And you may think, well, why was I following closely the Lord all those times? Because I'm as comfortable now as I was then. But what are you going to do when a covenant-keeping God comes to you with trouble and you find yourself terrified and you find yourself afraid? If you are truly the Lord's, you will turn back to him. But you don't have to wait to a day of trouble to do that. And thirdly, to the religious, numbered amongst the people of God, but with no relationship to God right now. He graciously tells you that you need not be vanquished with the world. You need not go out to a lost eternity. You need not hear the words that Jesus said to the Pharisees who were far more religious than you. You will receive greater damnation because we are judged according to our light. But rather, use this sign, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, to come to God through Jesus Christ. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's got many complexities in it, but we thank you for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you help us to apply it for the day in which we live. Help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you and to take it with us on the way. Father, we pray for the remnant that you would encourage them this day. Father, we pray for those who have slidden back from their first love that you would stop the slide and bring them back to yourself. Father, we pray for those who are religious but without a relationship with you that you would bring them, draw them with the cords of love by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ this day and we'll give you the praise in Christ our Savior and Lord, the one who is our head, the head of the church.